this remains one of Satan's most effective tools. He uses Scripture. He convinces people to use the Scripture to their own advantage. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part four of Power Over Temptation. Last time we began to look at Satan's second temptation of Jesus after Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And Tom continues to look at this temptation today, examining how your good and God-given desires to bring glory to God can be twisted to bring glory to yourself. You'll learn how Jesus rebuffed the outward temptation from Satan and how you too can overcome the inner desire for inordinate glory. You'll also discover the role that scripture and prayer play in revealing the ways you may be seeking self-promotion and selfish ambition and how God is calling you today to repent and find freedom in His will and by His grace alone. Let's join Tom Pennington right now for more on The Word Unleashed. Throughout that area where Jesus was tempted, there were dozens of places that were high places. If Satan didn't take Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem because he was looking for a high place, which he wasn't because there were plenty here, then there must be more involved. If you could have seen the pinnacle of the temple in ancient times, you would have seen that it was one of the most visible places in the entire city. I've shown you this slide, but I want to point out something else here. It would have been visible to a large portion of the city. This was one of the important areas of the city in Jesus' time, the city of David as it was called. But more importantly, the main entrance to the Temple Mount by hundreds of thousands of people, and Jerusalem at the time was probably inhabited by 80 to 100,000 people. They would have come, many of them, on a daily basis for the times of prayer, you remember, as you read about even in the book of Acts. Those people would have come up these steps. This is called the Southern Steps. These, this is the main entrance, these double sets of doors here were the main entrance up onto the Temple Mount. And so, at the right time, and it appears that Satan is, is doing all of this for the right timing, at the right time, there would be tens of thousands of people ascending those steps, going up for the time of prayer and the morning or evening sacrifice. It was an incredibly public place. So this temptation is not merely about throwing oneself off a high place and being rescued by the angels. The heart of this temptation, listen carefully, is about being seen. Why? Well, there was a rabbinic tradition that read, when the king, Messiah, reveals himself, then he comes and stands on the roof of the holy place. That may have been involved. But more than that, for Jesus to ascend to the top of the pinnacle of the temple, and to jump and be rescued would prove in the minds of the Jewish people that he was what? In fact, the Messiah. In his commentary on this passage, John MacArthur writes, for Jesus to have followed Satan's suggestion would have been in the eyes of many Jews sure proof of his Messiahship. That's the temptation. 
It's jump from here, and in so doing, prove to all of these people who will see that you are, in fact, the Messiah. Isn't that what you want? Alfred Edersheim, the great historian, writes, Now then, let him ascend. Excuse me, let him descend, heaven-born, into the midst of the priests and the people. What shouts of acclamation would greet his appearance? What homage of worship would be his? The goal can be at once reached as the head of believing Israel. The goal might indeed have been reached, but not the divine goal, nor in God's way. You see, what Satan was urging Christ to do was just the kind of sign that many were hoping for and expecting from the Messiah. It was the kind of sign that many false messiahs were in trying to perform even in the first century. Jesus said, an adulterous, evil generation craves for a sign. And he warns in Matthew 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. This is what Satan wants Jesus to do to create this great opportunity for a sign where he can show that he is, in fact, the Messiah. William Barclay, in his commentary, cites several examples from around the time of Christ of people doing just this or trying to. A man named Thutis led a group of people from the temple of the Jordan River promising to split the waters. Of course, you know what happened after he got there, and he didn't split the waters. No one listened to him anymore. This is what always happens with these guys. An Egyptian of that first century promised that he would flatten the walls of Jerusalem. And of course, that too never happened. Tradition says that Simon the magician from Acts 8 actually attempted to do the very thing which Satan tempted Jesus to do. He jumped off of the pinnacle of the temple, and Barclay says he lost both his life and, of course, his following. So what's going on here? When you look at the temptation, the nature of this second temptation, to back up and address what we've talked about before, this was in Satan's attempt an appeal to the God-given desire in Christ to bring glory to God. But the temptation to do it in such a way that God had not chosen. God would show that he was the Messiah, but not with a trick, not with a sign or wonder like this. Instead, what had the Spirit done? You remember after Jesus' baptism? The Spirit, rather than leading him into the temple, leading him into Jerusalem, having him show himself and do some great sign or wonder for the priests to prove to the leadership that he was the Messiah, the Spirit had driven him into the wilderness alone to be tempted. And so that was exactly the best way that Christ could bring glory to God at this time in his life and ministry. So the temptation then was in reality an appeal to self-promotion masquerading as a desire to bring glory to God. In the Garden of Eden, Satan used this very same temptation. You remember when Eve saw that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? She saw that it was desirable for three reasons, you remember? It was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable to make you wise. Or as Satan put it to Eve, God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now how does all of this relate to us? Let me put it very simply in these steps. 
There is within each of us a God-given desire to bring glory to God. We were made for this purpose. But our fallen hearts take that God-given desire and naturally pervert it and warp it into a desire not for God's glory, but for our own personal glory. In 1 John 2, the apostle John calls it the boastful pride of life. So for us who are fallen, the root sinful desire is a craving for personal glory. That is the boastful pride of life. I want to be recognized for who I am and what I have done. I want people to worship me. But the God-given desire that lies behind this craving is a desire to bring glory to God. We were made for that, and it's at that level that our Lord was tempted. Satan said, here's an opportunity for you to bring glory to God, to show that you're Messiah, but it really wasn't that at all. It was a temptation to, bring, to promote himself, to bring personal glory at the expense of God's glory. So what was the biblical response? You see this in verse 7. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here's how Jesus responded, how we should respond. Jesus, in all three temptations, responds with Scripture. Specifically, all three responses come from Deuteronomy 6, chapter 6 through chapter 8. He quotes from the Septuagint, and in this case, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16. By quoting Scripture in response to Satan's use of Scripture, we have a powerful lesson. Our Lord teaches us that we have an obligation to reconcile the various teaching of Scripture with other Scripture. It's really an argument for systematic theology, for Scripture interpreting Scripture. This is an old quote, but one that I think will benefit you. This is from Archbishop Trench, a language expert who wrote, There lies in Christ's words the secret of our safety and defense against all distorted use of isolated passages in Holy Scripture. Only as we enter into the unity of Scripture, as it balances, completes, and explains itself, are we warned against error and delusion, excess or defect on this side or the other. Thus the retort that Jesus gives, it is written again, or in other, or another place it's written, must be of continual application. For indeed, what very often are heresies, but one-sided, exaggerated truths, truths rent away indeed from the body and complex of the truth, without the balance of counter-truth, which should have kept them in their due place, coordinated with other truths or subordinated to them. And so, because those checks weren't there, it's not truth anymore, but what? Error. So Jesus teaches us, even in his response here to Satan, a crucial truth. But even more important for us is the context of Jesus' response. It's referring back, Deuteronomy 6.16 is, to Exodus. Turn back with me to Exodus. This is where this incident that Deuteronomy is rehearsing came from. Deuteronomy 17. I'm sorry, Exodus 17. Exodus 17. You remember the story here. The people are thirsty. Why aren't you giving us water? Verse 2, that we may drink. Why do you quarrel with me, Moses said? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses. Why did you bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses 
as we saw this morning, his circumstances drive him to prayer. He cries out to the Lord saying, what shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to provide, take your staff and you will strike the rock, verse 6, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. Moses did that. But notice verse 7. Here's the key verse. He named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel. And here's the key. And because they tested the Lord. How? How did they test God? Saying, is the Lord among us or not? Essentially, what these people were saying was this. If the Lord is truly among us, then he will do this thing. He will give us water. That is the very thing, do you see, that Satan was tempting Christ to do. If you are really the Son of God among us, if you're really God among us, if you're really the Messiah, then prove it to these people. It was a temptation to promote himself in a way that was at a time of his own making and in a way of his own making. Jesus said to do so was to presume on God. It was to test God. If Jesus had given in, he would have turned from pursuing the glory of God and would have instead been pursuing his own glory without reference to God. That was Jesus' response. I cannot put God to the test. I will not put him to the test. Now, in one sense, Jesus' temptation was unique. We will never be tempted like he was. None of us will ever be tempted to try to prove that we're the Messiah. This evening, as we were getting ready to come to church, Sheila asked me what I was going to be teaching on tonight, and I said the second temptation, you know, about being tempted to jump off the temple and prove you're the Messiah. And she kind of breathed a sigh of relief and said, good, you know, I've never been tempted to do that. And neither have you. I said, oh, by the way, it's about self-promotion and seeking personal glory. And she winced, and we all do. I wince, you wince, because this is where we live. This is what we are constantly tempted to do. This is the root temptation for us. It's the temptation of self-promotion and selfish ambition. In the words of the Apostle John, it is the pursuit of the boastful pride of life. We have taken the God-given desire to pursue God's glory, and we've turned it upside down into the pursuit of our own personal glory. You say, I don't remember doing that lately. Every time we are tempted to promote ourselves, to promote our status, to promote our position, to promote our accomplishments, to promote our spirituality with other Christians, it is the same temptation that Jesus experienced. We are pursuing not God's glory, but rather our own glory and our own self-promotion. Now, folks, it can be overt self-promotion, like the lady in the article. But that's very uncommon among Christians. We know better. So ours is what? A lot more sophisticated and subtle. We're really good at being subtle self-promoters. There are very few Muhammad Ali's in the church who say, I am the greatest. Instead, we find very polite ways to throw in a string of comments in a given conversation to make it clear that we are, in fact, the greatest. Or to read our Bibles just a little more intently than everyone around us. Or to 
act like we're singing more uh, intensely than the person beside us. And on and on it goes. We pursue our own glory in so many ways. So how does Jesus' response to temptation help us in dealing with the boastful pride of life? Let's talk about how to apply Jesus' victory. I want to reduce Jesus' response to this temptation to two ways of thinking. They're the two ways that we should respond every time there is a temptation to promote ourselves, to seek our own glory. This is how we should think. It's how Jesus was thinking, and I've pulled the one statement he made and the context back in Exodus, I've pulled those together into two brief responses. These are what we need to do. These are the responses we need to make. Number one, when you're tempted to promote yourself in any way, whether it's your business acumen, or whether it's your spirituality, or whether it's your wonderful example as a husband or wife or a child or whatever it might be. We're tempted in all those ways. Whatever it is, when you're tempted to promote yourself, to pursue your own personal glory, remember this, I am made to promote God's glory, not my own. Jesus lived to promote the Father's glory, and he would not promote his own at the Father's expense. There's so many passages that describe this. If you go back to Isaiah 49, that's one of those servant passages in Isaiah talking about the Messiah, and it makes this very point. But I want you to turn to John, the Gospel of John, and look at chapter 5, verse 41. Jesus said, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. He says, I am not about personal glory. I have come, verse 43, in my Father's name, and you don't receive me in my Father's name. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? You see what Jesus is saying to them? He's saying, listen, let me tell you what your real problem is. You're so busy pursuing the boastful pride of life, protecting your position, promoting yourself, that you will not respond to the glory of God here in the person of the Son of God. But Christ himself said in verse 41, I'm not about receiving glory from men. I'm not about pursuing that. Look over chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 49 Jesus answered, after he being accused of being a Samaritan and having a demon, nothing like name-calling, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me, but I do not seek my glory. There he says it very bluntly. I'm not about seeking my own personal glory. That's not what I'm about. Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Jesus said, look, I am not here to pump myself up. If, if I am glorified, it will be the work of the Father. I am here to glorify God. He was living as a perfect human being should live, and that meant that his whole life was devoted not to his own personal glory, but to the glory of God. You see it in these other examples as well. So if you're going to overcome the temptation to self-promotion and pursuing personal glory, remind yourself, as Jesus so often reminded those around him, you are made to promote God's glory and not your own. Secondly, and this is 
I think, contained in Jesus' response to Satan as well. If it brings God glory to promote or exalt me, then he will do it in his way and at his time. I'm not going to promote myself. If I'm going to be promoted, it's going to be God who does it. And isn't that exactly what God himself said about Christ? Turn back to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. You know this passage. After rebuking the Philippians for being selfish and pursuing their own way with empty conceit, he says, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He took the form of a, of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being made in, found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus said, I'm not going to exalt myself. But he knew there was a time coming when in God's way and in God's time, he would exalt him. But he wouldn't take the matter into his own hands. This is how we have to respond when we're tempted to promote ourselves and to pursue self-glory. Remind ourselves, as Jesus did, that we were made to promote God's glory, not our own, and that if God promotes or exalts me, if that brings Him glory, then He will do it in His way and at His time, but I'll not do it. By the way, this other passage, Luke 14, is an interesting one because Jesus is giving His disciples counsel, and He says, if you go to a banquet, don't seek out the chief seats. Go and find the lowest seat and let the, the one who's hosting the banquet invite you to the chief seat. There's a powerful lesson in that that Jesus himself kept, and for us as well. Jesus told Satan that if he were to seek his own self-promotion, it would be testing God. It would be stealing from God's glory. In essence, Jesus was saying this, I don't need to promote myself. If God wants to do that, if it will bring God glory to promote me, then he'll do it in his own way and in his own time. I'll wait for him. This is how we need to think when we're tempted to self-promotion, either with others or in our own minds. And by the way, the temptation comes both ways. Sometimes it comes with others, but there are people who are arrogant in their own mind and are, are content to keep it to themselves how much better they are than everyone else. Now, this passage, folks, is great preparation for the Lord's table for two reasons. One, because it reminds us of our sin and how it is ever present with us. As in the first temptation, the desire to satisfy the appetites of the body contrary to the revealed will of God, as that is a common experience, even so, it is a common experience to pursue our own glory instead of God's glory. Not only are we driven by the lust of the flesh, but we are driven by the desire for personal glory, the boastful pride of life. But there's another reminder here. Our Lord never succumbed, not even one time, to that temptation, to any of these root temptations. Our Lord said no to the temptation to satisfy the desires of His body outside the will of God. And our Lord said no to the temptation to pursue self-glory at the expense of God's glory. So as we partake of the Lord's table, 
we enjoy the benefit of Christ's life and His death. Because in His death, our violations of these things, our sins in these areas are paid for. The wrath of God against my pursuit of self-glory was paid for at the cross. But also, His life, that perfect life, that life of seeking only God's glory in justification is imputed to my account. And God treats me as the forgiven sinner. And you, if you're in Christ, as if you had never sought your own glory, but only God's. That's the miracle of the life and death of Jesus Christ. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of Power Over Temptation. Join us again next time for part five. And friend, join Tom Pennington in South Lake, Texas, February 18th through the 20th for the 2022 Countryside Bible Church Conference, Our Glorious Hope. Tom welcomes Steve Lawson, H.B. Charles, Philip DeCourcy, and more to remind you of the eternal hope of heaven that is ours in Christ and to spur you on to live in light of that reality today. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.